Welcome to The Lens with me, Sarah Travers. The Lens is a business in the community podcast in partnership with One Young World. Well, I'm delighted that our guests today are James Bain, Chief Executive of Worldline, which is a global leader in secure payments and trusted transactions, and Jemima Lovett, who is the founder of Thrive Future CIC, which is a social enterprise addressing gender equality by tackling taboos. Now, in this episode, we'll be exploring how businesses can support young people and others to have a balanced future. We'll also be looking at perhaps a difficult topic for many people, domestic abuse, but how support is available for and from business and from the third sector too. Well, to find out more, let's get stuck into the conversation on The Lens. James Jemima, welcome to The Lens. James, let's begin with you. If you want to tell us a little bit and tell the listeners about yourself and how your career has developed to get you to the position you are at now in the role of CEO of Worldline. Thank you, Sarah. So, um, yeah, it's been an interesting journey, I guess I'd say. I left school after amazing myself to get a U in economics A-level. I then went to study geology at Kingston University, and that lasted all of 24 hours. I then uh, took a year out, and I went... um, Work travelled a bit, and I uh, ended up back at Cheltenham and Gloucester College of Higher Education, it was, back in those days. Um, I did an HND in business and finance. Um, I also didn't manage to pass that. And I ended up temping for Virgin Trains in 1999. And my job was to go to the station and collect the old credit card swipe receipts from the train buffet and type the numbers into a spreadsheet. I figured that there must be a computer somewhere that could do this. So I went to some of the managers and uh, suggested I could write them a document of how they could do this. And um, to my amazement, they said, go on then. So I did. That system was invested in, bought, and it was only taken off the trains about five or six years ago. I don't have a traditional background in terms of university degrees. I don't have strong academic references. I know from my perspective now, being you know 47, um, that life can throw you different opportunities. And the, the thing I've always done is step forward and step into them. In terms of getting into Worldline, I was moved around to Arriva, um, which, was, which was another rail company. And I ended up creating something called redspidehanky.com, which is a competitor to the train line in the UK to sell rail tickets. And I ended up in a company called Atos Origin. They had this thing called Worldline. I was moved into that in 2012. My previous boss, when uh, she took over, she asked me what I wanted to do. And I, I guess, arrogantly said, your job, please. <laughs> But to, to be fair, she worked with me. She gave me a chance and supported me. And I uh, I took the CEO role on the 5th of March 2020. So I think I had a week and a half of normality before COVID kicked in. I'm married. I've got three boys, 22, 18 and 17. So, I mean, you really have had such an interesting journey to become a CEO. And it's quite heartening, really. Um, what strikes me just from the limited time we've been talking, you seem to have a, an inner confidence. Um, do you think that that's been something that has helped you get to where you are today? Or has it been those people who've recognised that in you? 
when I was younger, I wouldn't have called it confidence. I think it's probably been labelled as arrogance. There was a competitive fire there. Um, I, I was pretty sporty as a, as a child, so there was always an, an element of competition. From a family perspective, we had some challenges financially, etc. And I, I never wanted, I always wanted to strive to make sure I didn't run that same risk. The one thing I would say is I was given a chance. I wasn't asked to prove I had an academic list of certificates the length of my arm before I was allowed to do some. The, you know, the first story at Virgin, it really was somebody gave me a chance and I took that chance. I'm determined now I'm in the role I'm in to be able to do that for for the younger generations coming through because at the end of the day we all age and as morbid as it may sound we will all die eventually. I just want to ask you quickly in terms of when you're recruiting now those young people that come to you if you recognise that you called it arrogance I would say inner confidence do you look for that in somebody? I do and I proactively go out my way to give them a chance because somebody gave me a chance it's all about the character of the individual and I'm really clear that they will fail they will make mistakes but that's okay because that's how we learn and that's something that it's taken me 24 25 years to actually understand truly but it's really important that we don't just say we give people a chance but we also put the support around them for when they fail and the learning from failure is far more important than the learning from success. Brilliant. Okay, well, I'll come back to you in just a second, James. Let's bring you in, uh, Jemima. You're very welcome to the lens uh, too. And, you know, I love your bio. Um, It says Jemima Lovett is a founder, social entrepreneur, trustee and a lawyer. But you're this social entrepreneur and lawyer. They're not two titles I normally see in a bio. So I'm intrigued as to how your journey has looked so far. It's an interesting one. I often get asked that. It's like, I suppose people see law as kind of after the event, figuring out consequences and punishments and uh, can be quite draconian, whereas social entrepreneurship is sort of uplifting and trying to change things and trying to prevent things beforehand. I really started out working in a domestic abuse charity after I graduated. I thought about going down the kind of city solicitor route, but didn't find it very attractive. thought that I could probably do a bit more interesting work going into the sort of charity sector and it was really through that that I attended One Young World through that work that I started doing the sort of gender equality and business piece that I focus on today everyone around me was working as qualified lawyers and so that seemed to be like an important step to take to really be able to represent and help people so I've always had both projects going on um, and at various stages one has been more of a focus than the other and I, I think I find that just very rewarding. Yeah it sounds like it but what you're trying to do is drive uh, social change, awareness and especially in the area of domestic abuse. I know you worked particularly for a, a charity that dealt with domestic abuse. Is that where you first came into contact with it? Very much so. You know, I grew up in a really happy household, very supportive, and I was totally shocked by the stories that I heard in the room when I went to this event as a university student. And I just remember thinking, uh, everyone here who's doing something about this has, has had an experience but that just seems so wrong that we should leave it to people who have had to survive this awful thing in their life and have had to experience abuse. And we should make them then solve the problem. I think this is something we all need to get behind and uh, we all need to do something because it feels like a sort of matter of luck that you haven't had to experience it yourself. Well, the focus really of this episode is about creating a balanced future. Yes, we're talking about recognising and we will talk to you more about recognising uh, domestic abuse maybe in 
in the workplace. But if we just focus on the young people and creating a balanced future, first of all, James, you've already talked about, you know, your own personal story leading uh, the kind of boss that you have become now. But you have a passion really for helping young people to get into work. So tell us a little bit about Worldline, first of all, what it does um, and about your organisation. And then if you could tell us a little bit about how you make work work for young people within Worldline. We provide uh, electronic digital services for shops, petrol stations, hotels, train companies, that when you pay for something, we are the ones behind the scenes that move the money around, basically. So when you go into a shop, tap your card on the terminal, we provide systems that link that terminal to your bank, to the retailer's bank and we take your money and give it to the retailer for either the service or good that you have bought. We operate in over 80 countries and just to give you an idea of scale, we process over 400 billion euros every year of payments for various merchants as as we call them and we provide our services to nearly 1.3 million merchants globally. You will probably use our services if not daily, at least weekly. The one thing for me that is absolutely critical is that we have a balance and we have an equality across our our workforce. And that also applies to age, as well as gender, as well as sexuality, as well as religious beliefs and everything else. But from an age perspective, if I can politely put it this way, we're on the older side of the scale from an average age perspective. Uh, So when I came in two and a half years ago now, I wanted to do something to redress that balance. We've gone down the apprenticeship route in the UK. So we now have 22% of our people are on apprenticeship programmes in the UK and Ireland. And we've done that over the last 18 months. What we do is when uh, these guys come in, they come in in a proper job. They come in and they're doing a job that matters from day one to the services we provide and to the end consumer and end customer. We then support them through their apprenticeship program and learning and we will take them in from level three and we'll take them all the way through to level six, seven, which is degree master's equivalent, I think, if they want to. If they don't want to, that's not a problem at all. And then they move on and they've got career opportunities inside Worldline that they can go on and explore. Our youngest apprentice that joined us this year only turned 16 last week. So that scale of age is massive. And what those guys in the younger generations understand about the world, I will never learn. And it's really important from us, for our innovation and our development and our human capital that we invest in those people. Some of those kids could see in the next century. Their children will definitely see in the next century. I won't. So, you know, we have to plan for the future. And what I want to do is give younger people the opportunity I was given so that when they get to my age or my position, they are then able to have a rounded view of how they might want to lead an organisation, they they hopefully will be able to understand that whilst GCSE and A-level results are absolutely critical at a point in time, it is only at a point in time. They're not absolutely critical when you're on your deathbed looking back at your regrets. No. <laughs> so it's really important to have the, for me to have that rounded perspective. 
the middle aged amongst us think that working from home is perfect and that uh, um, it can be absolutely fine. And why do we need offices? Sure. All of my apprentices want to be in the office five days a week because they want to build a community. They don't want to be in their bedroom on Teams. And I think the media push around virtual working is driven from a certain demographic of the population that isn't truly understanding what the young people of today actually want and are demanding. It's really interesting, some of the debates we've had, and it's opened our eyes, if I'm perfectly honest, into how we work going forward. And our ears, I suppose, too, James, because that requires you to listen, not just decide this is what everybody wants based on what we want or what we think young people want. If we look at the statistics across the UK, in some ways it seems like we're doing okay for young people with uh, our youth unemployment rate about 4% lower than the rest of Europe. But in the most recent government statistics, the number of 16 to 24-year-olds who are economically inactive increased by 15,000 from the previous quarter. So how do we reach the 16-year-old? And we go to local schools and we, we share what we do. We show some evidence of what we do. I think one of the benefits we have from a maybe shiny bright light perspective is we're a technology company computer science company a lot of the youngsters join us because they want to learn how to code it's a it's a skill set that will be needed going forward the other thing we do is we work with recruitment agencies and we work with our apprenticeship providers to get deep into um the websites that we need to go after the different bodies around the uk that we can engage with to generate the demand this year, we have recruited in uh, June 50 apprentices, or they started in June. We started the recruitment process in February. We had a 1,000 applications for 50 positions. Gosh, right. You're doing something right, and the message is, is being heard. Worldline, interestingly, was also named as one of the Times top 50 employers for women in 2022 in the UK. So, you know, that's something uh, I'm sure you're very proud of as well, James. I'm extremely proud but humbled. We still have more to do from a a gender equality perspective. At a a global level, we have what we call a Trust 2025 commitment and where we want 30% of our senior managers to be women by 2025. We're on our way to do that. But from a a UK perspective, it's really important that the, the work the teams do in terms of redressing some of the imbalance of the, of the past is recognised and the recognition from Times Top 50 um, is brilliant. And, you know, what we've said internally, it's, it's amazing and we're very proud of it. The challenge is going to be making sure we can maintain it. We've got some stuff we need to do, and particularly around family policies, etc. So, you know, we, we've just agreed internally to increase our paternity leave from two weeks to six weeks for men or for partners to help with childcare. Um, We're giving partners and grandparents days off to attend first day of school, assemblies, nativity plays, all, all, all those sorts of things. And that's just one example of the feedback that we had from going through the process. So, you know, Yes, it was it was amazing to win it, but it was very humbling because it also helps us understand what else we can do and should be doing and should be looking at. So there were big gaps there. Jemima, do you see a gap between young men and women entering the workforce? And what are those challenges from your perspective at the minute? Yeah, I think there are gaps between uh, young men and young women entering the workforce, particularly when you consider the very high rates of domestic abuse and sexual harassment that young women experience um, and how that must be affecting their performance at work. 
Um, the Office for National Statistics found that women aged between 16 and 19 and between 20 and 24 were actually the most likely of any age category to be the victims of domestic abuse. And UN Women UK researchers found that 97% of women aged between 18 and 24 have been sexually harassed. So we know that these issues are really very acutely felt by young women. And we know that domestic abuse and sexual harassment more broadly affects performance at work. So this must be having an impact on young women when they're entering the workforce. And one thing I always observe whenever I'm talking to people about these issues is that you know, even if it's not themselves that has experienced domestic abuse or sexual harassment, um, a lot of young women are likely to be supporting a friend who has. Um, and for both the young woman survivor and also her network of supporters, there's a huge emotional and psychological toll that's carried to work. And from what I've observed, these issues just aren't affecting young men to the same degree. Um, Jemima, can I just come in there? Because, you know, there, there are a lot of statistics there. Some people will be nodding in agreement. Others might be really shocked about what they're hearing. Can you give us some context? There's definitely the fact that it's kind of recognised a lot more and talked about and there's a higher level of awareness and therefore a higher there's a level of disclosure, I suppose. But what's more shocking to me, especially from the UN Women UK research, was that 96% of women did not report those situations because they didn't think that it would change anything. Um, and so whilst they're experiencing it, there seems to be this higher rate amongst young people. There's still a kind of belief that reporting won't change anything, that there's no point in kind of disclosing or coming forward or trying to change and trying to look at why these things are happening amongst young people. And I think that is really concerning because that's like the same rhetoric that we've heard from kind of previous generations kind of ignoring the problem that seems to continue. So tell me more about your organisation that you have founded yourself, Thrive Futures, specifically dealing with this issue. We all sort of sat down and said, well, if any of us had an experience of domestic abuse and we went to our employer, they wouldn't really know what to do with us. I mean, they wouldn't have any policy. There's no policy in place. There's no training on this. There's no kind of awareness that this issue might be affecting us. Um, and so we started researching that topic um, and we created a business case around it um, and we presented that to businesses. And that was really how we got some interest um, from some big corporates. And that really took off. And then I, I formalised it as Thrive Future. You said you had a lot of interest in some of the large corporates, but did you face any challenges as well? I mean, we're dealing with very difficult topics and they're not ones that businesses like gravitate towards or particularly want to like talk about. It's not ones that they sort of run at. So there's a lot of time spent persuading businesses to get involved, to join our business network, to attend training sessions, to really engage. Um, in the early days, I had businesses turn around and say, no way, if we run a training on domestic abuse, people will just think that we hire loads of victims. And for a long time, I just really wasn't sure. I know it's really shocking. Like some of the responses I had right at the beginning, um, really uninformed um, around this topic. And I have to say, founding it in 2020, people always say that sounds insane, but there was a reason why it took off in 2020. And obviously during the pandemic, the issue of domestic abuse was talked about a lot more in the news. The rates obviously went up and it became a much more publicly discussed issue. And I have to say since then, um, businesses are much more aware and they're much more prepared to have a conversation. Um, although we still get a lot of businesses saying, we just don't have budget. We're not prepared to commit to this topic. It's too difficult for us. So there's still a lot of persuasion to do. James is shocked there by that response from some people. James, is it something that you think about as a CEO about domestic abuse? Yeah, it's something we've actually acted on as well. So we, we've had a couple of instances where we've had to step in and protect some of our people. 
for example, we have removed them from situations and then we've just funded safe, I'll call it safe houses for want of a better term, for, for a period of time. I'm not very often lost for words, <laughs> but I can't, I can't believe that CEOs and leaders would not, in this day and age, take it take it seriously. And, and if it's okay, I, I, something I'd like to ask um, Jemima, um, if, if you don't mind. So I was just, as I said earlier, I've got three boys. They were all born in this century. They don't know life without the internet. They certainly don't know life without social media. And, you know, is there evidence that the explosion of social media, for example, has made the situation worse? And I'm assuming there is benefit from social media as well in terms of getting the message amplified that this is not okay. We have to address it and do more around the issue of domestic abuse. But I... If it's okay, Sarah, I was just curious to learn more from Jemima on the impact of social media, particularly in relation to the use of social media by the the younger generations. Oh, I'm interested too, Jemima. Social media is going to create very toxic relationships because it allows people to be constantly accessible. Things like Snapchat and I think Instagram now more recently allows you to have a specific location available. So people can literally uh, track where you are um, and can come and find you. So an abusive partner has like a very... Uh, direct access um, to you which makes it even harder to provide someone with safety um, and to sort of get them out of that situation social media has definitely also encouraged a much more kind of toxic type of relationship um, and I think that we see that um, a lot in terms of the sort of cases especially young women talk about it also helps we obviously can amplify using social media to try and reach more people and try and communicate with them. But it does feel like your uh, fighting thrive social media presence is going to be much smaller um, than the kind of perpetration of abuse through social media and the kind of manipulation that that can, can lead to. So it's a big problem and definitely has been a big cause. And, you know, we really need the tech companies to step up on that one and take more direct action. And you're really tackling something that is, I suppose, a taboo issue. And that's where we're at now, isn't it, in the world? We're having to feel uncomfortable because there are things going on that shouldn't be going on in this day and age. And we have to call them out. But, Jemima, how frustrating is it, given the statistics that you've also um, revealed today, that was it 96%, 97, was it 96 or 7% who say, well, there's no point in doing anything because nothing gets done about it. We have to yeah. hear that frustration and understand that. Why is that the case? Yeah, it's 96% of young women have, have had an experience of such harassment and haven't reported it because they don't believe that anything would come from that. And they probably also, I imagine, think that it would be a lot of bother um, and potentially would backfire on them if they did report it. I think there's a huge amount to be done by our policing services to build more trust. But I would expect to see higher levels of reporting to say frontline charities who can provide support services. And our training is always very much about recognising the signs, spotting the signs in colleagues, spotting the signs in clients and customers, but then referring them onto the frontline support services that can provide kind of expert support and a 360 service uh, that someone needs in this sort of complex situation. As a journalist myself and have you know worked for the BBC for many years and we were repeatedly covering stories all the time about the failure to prosecute in mm. sexual harassment or, or abuse or rape cases. Um, so many didn't get before the courts, but it required such an effort on the part of the victim. Obviously, there are people that absolutely need to go to jail or justice needs to be done. Mm. But 
much better that you're actually saying it, you don't have to be plastered all over news programs or newspapers that this has happened. Exactly. And I mean, as a lawyer, I think it's a huge failing of the system that we don't better support and some of the protections that are only just coming in for survivors of domestic abuse in the family courts. I mean, it's really shocking that that's only just happening now. I think we need to definitely encourage people to go to frontline services as their first port of call because the frontline service will then also help people if they do want to prosecute and they do want to go through the justice system because we do need people to obviously report and take those cases forward but it should always be done within the support of an expert service um obviously there can be much more obvious things like physical bruising and and things like that i mean that's much more obvious but um and then you obviously need to take immediate action to support that person but more subtle things where you're thinking this person's just changed their habits they've changed how they're working their confidence level has dropped they don't seem to want to do as much they're not going for that promotion which they definitely would have gone for before like what's going on here um opening up that conversation um and you know we've had people come out of our trainings and say um you know i had started dating someone and they'd started doing all this odd behavior and i felt this change in myself at work and it was only coming to your training i then realized that's what was going on it was just the beginnings of this abuse starting and i sort of was then able to leave that relationship so we've had people you know come out of it and say actually it really opened my eyes in my own relationship as well as in others what if someone reacts badly to you asking that question yeah, and you can get all sorts of reactions um, to, to trying to have this conversation. And what I always say is um, it actually takes on average 33 times for someone to try to disclose before they will fully disclose. Really? Um, and so, yeah, so this conversation may just be one of those interactions where they have an opportunity to fully disclose, but they don't quite make it. Um, and you're just helping them along the way and you're sowing that seed that actually support is available. In that moment, they may feel caught and in a corner and like they don't want to disclose and they're very scared they'll walk away and they'll think actually wait a second what did Jemima say about that refuge that's down the road that I can give a call to when I'm on my own you know and when can I actually reach out for some help but maybe privately the other thing we always say is to try and make meeting rooms available so if you can have meeting rooms openly available for people to freely book then people can have these conversations they can call the frontline charities when they're not at home they're not with the abuser they're in a private space that's a really um, key step that we always put into policies but you know people can behave can react really badly and you know people are not going to be the typical victim the typical victim is sort of terribly grateful and really sort of like a mousy person that's like really pleased that you've stepped in and helped them and is ready to be helped and saved like so few people are really like that james does this speak to you do you want to know more yeah i think for me there's just some things that i wanted to say ask just to help my understanding i wanted to ask around when you're doing the training and, and and people first come in and you're talking about a domestic abuse and I may be, you know, being judgmental here, but my assumption is when people come into that, they would expect to be talking about physical violence, whereas actually, you know, coercive controlling behaviour, gaslighting, for want of a better term, I think with technology that we have these days is, is becoming far more prevalent than, than ever, ever before. And, you know, is that something that you see regularly um, in, a, in the work that you do? 
the vast majority at the beginning of the training will say uh, physical hitting, beating, um, some sort of physical abuse. Um, and then we introduce them to all five different types of abuse, psychological, physical, sexual, financial, emotional. We talk through what that looks like. And honestly, that can be one of the most eye-opening aspects of the training. Um, it's just that wider definition of what domestic abuse is. Thank you. Uh, just from our perspective, so what we do, particularly around the mental health, is I believe that that has to be dealt with by professionals. We have a group facility um, where people can phone and talk to, but what we also do in the UK is we work directly with a psychology company and we have them basically on call. We do need people to feel comfortable that they can open and share where they are having challenges. I think, you know, we've still got a lot of work to do with domestic abuse particularly and after listening to you I'll definitely be in touch. And James I just want to um, talk to you a little bit because we were, were talking about yes domestic abuse very serious subject there's some shocking statistics it's been a real wake-up call um, f- during this episode what Jemima has has outlined has really made me think differently but if we go back to that recruiting young people in the first place you're you you're you're maybe recruiting on certain skills certain capabilities certain abilities certain type of person these people hopefully you're going to put into a pipeline and then develop them to become leaders to become people managers how do we get these compassionate people at the recruitment stage how do we get because being a manager now is so much more than just making sure that you sell or that your people you know are turn up on time what we do um when we're recruiting the apprentices is we 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 do have a apply here click link fill form in process but then we do a filtering of the application and we use this psychology company to help us filter the applications so we're already at that stage looking for people that have already got more of a broader um compassionate personality and it it's really important for me that it's compassionate not empathetic because compassion is care with action empathy can sometimes lead to just talk with little action the apprentices as they go through Um, an induction program where, again, we teach them as much as we can at an early stage around how to be compassionate, how to look out for different traits in different people, how to work with different people. I'd far rather have a compassionate, broader person because I can teach them the skills and capability. We've got to where we are by trying, learning, succeeding, failing and, and, and learning and going again. I'd really uh, be keen to know if you have any questions for James, perhaps Jemima. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I find it really interesting listening to your like journey and I feel like having kind of fallen into entrepreneurship myself as well. Um, I just wondered if you had any kind of advice for me at this earlier stage in my career about things you learned from and, and any advice that you can give me. I think the, the learning for me is that... Um, mistakes happen and you will make mistakes and don't beat yourself up about making making mistakes because otherwise you won't progress things will fail and it's it's how you react and come out of the failure that i think is important when you start off on entrepreneurship um and you have a spreadsheet and you build a business plan and you have a revenue line and it and it only goes one way yeah that's not true um, it will go many, many ways and it will go in journeys and doors will open that you never thought would open. And, you know, my biggest piece of advice is when the door opens, 
walk through it before it shuts because you never know what's on the other side of it. Yeah, good advice. Thank you. And uh, James, do you have any final question for Jemima? The the final question is, you know, what more support would you want from people like me, people that are listening to this podcast? Yeah, so we've launched a business network um, just a few months ago. So our big ask for anyone who in senior leadership positions to join the business network um, and to advocate to other business leaders that this topic needs to be addressed. Um, so anything you can do to kind of use your platform to spread our message um, is is so helpful. Brilliant. Okay, well, it's been brilliant to talk to you both about young people and careers and creating a balanced future, but also a psychologically safe future. That theme has definitely been drawn out during this episode of The Lens. Business in the community is encouraging businesses to demonstrate how they're using their businesses to work it fairer for the people, be greener in their treatment of the planet and work together with communities. So just finally, how are each of your organisations doing that? Jemima. So um, we're obviously very focused on the grow piece around helping businesses by providing in-work support through education and training. Um, But we are also looking at the inspire and hire elements. We're planning an employability academy to help people who have left the workforce due to domestic abuse to re-enter it um, in a truly supported way. Um, And that's a new programme that we're planning on launching later this year. James. The hire and inspire has been the critical uh, piece that we've had to do over the last two and a half years. We're now in the grow piece. You know, I want to grow my own talent. I want to grow our own and, and nurture and, and and feed and water and care and look after because I truly believe that by doing that, um, we will be providing a future world with leaders that can hopefully take it forward to be a better place. Those uh, world line seedlings will be well looked after in the polytunnel. But final question, I ask this to all of the Lens guests. As responsible leaders, both of you at different stages perhaps of your careers, what are you committed to doing more of or less of in the coming year? Jemima. Um, I'm committing to to not flying to Europe um, and to just taking the train. I like that. James? Um. What I'm committing to uh, for the next year, 12 months, is to put more water on the seedlings, as you called them, Sarah. So we will not be recruiting any more apprentices in 2023. We need to establish the ones that we've got and give them a chance to to move them forward. What I'm going to stop doing, and we've, we've already moved this way, is constant virtual meetings that can be done with an old-fashioned telephone call or conversation with a cup of coffee in an office. Remember those, imagine. Yeah, absolutely. It has been a pleasure to talk to you both today. You've been listening to The Lens with me, Sarah Travers, joined by James Bain, Chief Executive Worldline, and Jemima Lovett, founder of Thrive Future CIC. If your business would like to find out how it can open its doors and have a more inclusive approach to recruitment, or if you'd like support for some of the tougher issues that we've been discussing today, such as domestic abuse and the workplace, please visit www.bitc.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time.